Man, I love being with you guys. Makes me want to move to Kona. <laughs> I, but I know that you guys aren't always here, right? Because you guys are leaving. So then is, there's no point. Uh, can I come with you? Yeah. I would love to. I really would. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, I'm, 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 I'm positive I'm sadder about sadder, not a word, more sad about leaving than you are. Um, you know, the Midwest United States is it's just ridiculously cold this winter. And so we're going back to snow on the ground that has just not relented. So both Ellie and, well, I don't know about Blake because I haven't talked, both Ellie and I this morning are like, breathe in every moment right now because we have to get on an airplane. So we're sad about that. And we're sad about, this has been so fun. I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you, I love talking about this stuff because what happens, uh, number one, I, I love to have the conversation with you guys and I like to open up the word of God and I like to just kind of bask in the glory of how beautiful the gospel is and just kind of like, it stirs the fire in my own heart again and uh, brings strength to my own life. So really, I want to thank you guys and just honor you for your hunger, your ache, your longing and, and really just the way that you've positioned yourself to receive from God in this moment, it's powerful. And uh, I just believe that just the, the, over the 12 weeks of lecture, God is going to do more than you can ask or imagine in your life. I mean, I think we all come, doesn't matter what age we jump into our DTS, we all come with a longing for more of God and specific things that we want him to do in our life. And I believe he's going to do more than we can ask or imagine as we just position ourselves in that place of longing and hunger and desire. So I want to I want to I want to uh, I want to answer one of the questions that came yesterday from over here somewhere. Who asked the question about fasting? Mitchell. Mitchell, stand up for a moment. OK, so. OK, good. That's. That's a great question, but it's a dangerous question. So I just want to honor you for that question. Well done. <laughs> okay, I, I do want to answer that a little bit. I wasn't planning to talk about fasting, but I like to talk about fasting. I was going to say I love to talk about fasting, but, but every time I talk about fasting, then I'm, 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 I grow in my own conviction to fast, which I like. There's this, um, an, a, a bunch of years ago when Deborah and I first got married, uh, I was leading worship at the One Thing Conference, and... Um, Deborah's sister, Dana, had just uh, written a book with Mike called The Rewards of Fasting. And so Mike wanted to highlight it on the platform. And so he called Dana up and then he called Deborah up because they kind of both worked on the book together. And um, so he wanted them to give testimony about the fact, you know, just what fasting had done in their lives. And, uh, and so they were on the platform right over here, and I was over here at the keyboard because I just got done leading worship, and we were about to go into a ministry time. And so first Deborah talks, and then Dana talks, and then Mike turns, and he goes, Murray, you're on the platform. Why don't you tell us about fasting in your life? And I was just like, I, was, I mean, in that moment, I was like, no, do not ask me because here's what my wife said. Like, literally, here's my wife is like, I love fasting. I mean, that's in her response. And I'm like, oh, I hate fasting. I mean, in my, I have this like inner groan of like, I hate fasting. And so in that moment, I decided to go with honesty. And I go, well, I go, Mike, I'm going to give you a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, the truth is, I, I mostly hate fasting. 
And there was this like corporate groan in the room at the moment. And then I said, but let me turn it all around. I said, but I believe that God has something for us in the place of fasting that I'm going to give myself to until I get to this place where really my wife was at in the moment where I love fasting. And here's why. So I, I'm gonna, I want to talk about this for literally no more than 15 minutes. Otherwise, um, it's going to be too much. But, but here's what I want us to know. Fasting. I believe there's a new paradigm for fasting in the New Testament. Okay, so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 9. I think fasting should be one of those things that we love. It shouldn't be one of those things that we groan about. It should be one of those things that we love. And mostly, if we're honest right now, uh, we, we groan when we think about a fast. Is that true? Yeah, we kind of have this inner groan. Now, we know we should do it. We, we know it's, it's powerful. We know that it should be part of our life, kind of like, in some ways, kind of like Bible reading. But it's like, it's, it's one of those things I should do, but when someone says, we're going to go on a fast, we're like, oh, okay, I know I should want to right now, but I don't really want to. So I, wanna, I want us to understand this a little bit. <clears throat> so I'm going to read Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? So you have to know that at that point in time, the Pharisees fasted two days a week. All right, so two days a week, they abstained from food. So that was the context that uh, the disciples of John came to Jesus. It's interesting also that it was those same Pharisees that fasted two days a week that also put Jesus up on that cross. Kind of terrifying, all right? So, and Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskin bursts, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So, I mean, I th we, we sang a little bit about this, I think, on Monday morning. In the place of worship, just that reality of the new wineskin, that the old wineskin's not bad. It was good. It's powerful. It was helpful. But Jesus introduces a new wineskin. And basically, he's doing a couple things right here in, in uh, Matthew 9. First of all, he introduces himself as a bridegroom. It's powerful for a couple of reasons, but primarily here because he's talking to the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And, uh, and what he does when he introduces himself as a bridegroom, everyone in the room, whoever's listening, knows that he's referring to himself as God. Okay, so, so if you look at the theme of the bridegroom introduced in the Old Testament, the Pharisees knew that God referred to himself as a bridegroom. And in his relationship with Israel, he referred to himself, he says, I am a bridegroom, I've betrothed myself to you, I'm covenanting myself to you forever. So when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, it was like the Pharisees got lost in the conversation of fasting and like, you're saying you're God, that's what you're saying right here. Alright, so you got to know that. Something up, something bigger is going on than just the conversation of fasting. So Jesus in a, in a roundabout way, says, I'm God. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn 
All right, so basically what he's saying is in the Old Testament, for thousands of years before Jesus came, fasting was primarily a uh, position of mourning. It was a longing or mourning for the absence of the Messiah, okay? That was the position of the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament fast, it positions itself more in the mourning, we need God to come and break in kind of thing. Which I believe doesn't disappear when Jesus comes. There really are times where we fast. We fast for a, for a break-in, breakthrough. We fast for certain things that we want to see God do. But what Jesus says here in Matthew 9 is the primary reason they're going to fast from now on, it's going to be about desire. It's going to be about we're going to be longing for the bridegroom. All right, so he shifts it a little bit, and he adds a, a component to it, and he says, how can, he says, the whole reason people fast is because I wasn't here. That's what he's saying. Because God wasn't with you. That's the reason people fast. But I'm going to leave, and when I leave, then they will fast. All right? And then they will mourn. So the primary reality of fasting is about longing for a bridegroom in the New Testament. It's, it's lovesick reality. It's I've fallen in love, and I don't like to be absent from the one that I love. That's primarily what it's about. It's not mostly about breakthrough, although in the position of the intimacy is where the breakthrough comes. But the primary motivation is not only breakthrough. It's actually intimacy. I love being on this trip with Blake because Blake is, how many years have you been married, Blake? Two years, and they have the cutest baby in the world right now. I can say that because my kids are not babies anymore. But they have the cutest baby in the world right now, all right? And Blake loves being here, but it's getting a little bit long for him because he really misses his wife. He misses Rachel, and he misses Judah, all right? He has this, like, I don't care about the weather. I don't care about how great Kona is. I just want to get home to my wife and my baby. He's got a, lo a lovesick reality in his heart. Okay, so primarily in this age, fasting is that. It's lovesick. Jesus, I just, I want more of your presence. I want nearness. I miss your presence. I want what you wanted at the beginning. The like, I want to be with you too, God. <laughs> All right, so that's primarily what fasting is about. It should be a fasting about pleasure. Not primarily, if we look at fasting primarily as abstaining from something, I believe that we're going to miss something. All right? So I can do the whole, like, you can look at church history and go, throughout church history, fasting has been a, a pivotal part of the church. So I'm not going to go into that. But I want to talk a little bit about the fast that leads to pleasure. For many of us, the thought of fasting, I already said this, causes that inward groan. It's like, oh, I remember waking up from my first 21-day fast. Literally, like, I, you know, it was just like water kind of fast. I, I remember waking up from that fast, just kind of like lying in my bed going, oh, my gosh, I'm still alive. Like, I cannot believe a human being can go 21 days without eating and still be alive. Really. I mean, that's remarkable, I think. <laughs> Because we're all afraid that if I miss a meal, I might die, you know, in the world that we live in, right? My gosh, if I miss lunch, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to die, right? Okay, so we have this inward groan. The truth is fasting is not supposed to be a hindrance to pleasure, but a way into pleasure. Okay, fasting is not a hindrance to pleasure, but it's a way into pleasure. This is a 
key thing to think about. What we do when we fast is we deny our flesh and we put our spirit in the lead. If we feed our spirit, we will actually know more pleasure. We are not used to thinking about, primarily in our world, we're not, primar- we're not used to thinking about making decisions about what brings pleasure to my spirit. I mostly make decisions about what brings pleasure to or comfort to my flesh. And we have the ability to do that. All right? So all the things that bring comfort to our flesh is temporary. It's not bad, but it's temporary. There are fleshly things that are bad. There's sin. And then there's fleshly things like food, for example. That's not bad. There's nothing wrong with food. All right? Food is good. God gave us food. In its right place, food is good. But it's a temporary pleasure that's supposed to speak to us about something greater. The difficulty in fasting comes in our addictions to inferior pleasures or secondary pleasures. I mean, if we're just truthful about it, we are addicted to secondary pleasures. There's so many secondary pleasures that make us happy. We fill our time with secondary pleasures. But if you take all of those things away, who are we before God? If you take every other thing away from your life, and it's just you and God in the room, what happens? You know, I mean, one of the reasons we struggle in the prayer room or in the place of prayer is because the truth is I just don't have a very intimate relationship with God. Whoa, I'm falling. I just don't have a very intimate relationship with God, okay? And so when no one else is in the room, it gets awkward, all right? That, that's, that's really it. It's, it's like, yeah, it's great when there's a bunch of people in the room and they can help me with the conversation. But if it's just me and God, it exposes the fact that I, I, I'm not actually very intimate with you. We don't know what to talk about. That's true in friendships, right? Like if you go, hey, let's go for coffee. And at the end of the day, you don't have anything to talk about. You don't have a whole lot in common. You're not going to spend a lot of time with that person. So when we remove some of those lesser pleasures and all of the other distractions, and it's just us and God in the room, it exposes our lack of intimacy with God. And we don't like that. It's probably one of the most painful things in the world. So we actually want to fast to free ourselves from inferior or lesser pleasures. We want to fast to, like, intentionally put some of those pleasures aside to give myself to a greater one. We often um, stimulate ourselves in a thousand ways besides actually just with relationship with God and his word. Think about all the things that we do all day long to keep ourselves going that are not God and his word. And if all of those things were taken away, what would our relationship with God look like? That's the that's primary reason for the fast. We are terrified to forsake all of those stimulants. I mean, just take our phone away. Take social media away. <laughs> take every movie, Netflix. There, there's nothing you can, like, take, take your Wi-Fi away. <laughs> You're like, what? Like, you can't do that. You can't take my Wi-Fi away. Like, what happens if you take your Wi-Fi away? You have no access to social media, no Netflix binges, no nothing. Every weekend, you have no access to the Internet. All right? Just know that. Many of us, like, we start to, like, shake a little bit. We're, we're so stuffed up in our world and propped up with so many things that actually they're things that God has given us that are not necessarily bad. But we've replaced them and put them in first place as opposed to God. 
So things that are not, things like food, relationships, pursuits of ministry, finance, music, recreation, entertainment, those are all good. But what happens when you take all of those things and you go, I'm going to pull all of those things out of my life and it's just me and God in conversation right now? What does it look like? How much relationship with God is there? All right? It's just us, our raw, naked, weak self before God, and it gets awkward. The conversation gets awkward. Okay? So it's only as our souls are freed from lesser pleasures. That's what we want right now. We want to free our souls from lesser temporary things that we really love. Okay? It's not bad to like social media. I like social media. One of the re- primary reasons, I did a social media fast in January, and I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. But the primary reason I like social media is because I like to stay connected to people that I know and love involved in ministry or they're different parts of the world. And it's like I can stay so connected, and I can be, I can be in relationship with them, not only through social media, but I can stay so connected. I, I want to build up. I want to encourage. I want to strengthen what they're doing in those places, and so I like to stay connected. That's a good thing, all right? But social media can also just become the thing that we go to first. We wake up in the morning, we roll over, and we flick open our phone, and we, like, hit that social media feed as the first thing we do, all right? So often, all of those other things can let us live in a delusion that we are so abandoned to God. All of those things, all of our friendships, relationships, food, ministry endeavors, everything that we're a part of can let us think that we're very abandoned to God. But you take all of those things away and it's just me and God, then what's my relationship really like? Now, the truth is our community, our our ministry involvement, our recreation, our entertainment, our fellowship around the table, those are all good. They're positive. Like, I don't think you should fully ever take those things away. But when those are the things that prima- are our first loves as opposed to God, it get, there, there tends to be trouble. So the God that, here's what, ha- here's what fasting helps us do. It helps us dethrone uh, the secondary gods in our life. It just helps us, all right? Because we don't realize how addicted we are to food at the end of the day, and it exposes something. That's what it was for me. It's just like we have this idea in the West that it's like I, I have to have three meals a day plus snacks. And if I don't, I won't be healthy. All right. I mean, I mean, we just live in that kind of a world. It's just like I have to have all of this. M- many parts of the world, they're happy if they get one meal a day. I mean, it's just the way they live. It's not they're not fasting. It's just the way they live. So we know in the West or wherever we're from in this room, I'm guessing we're a little bit addicted to food. Now, real quickly, I want you to jot these passages down just so you can look at them later. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. I'm going to read it for you. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have uh, us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul's talking about enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is where? 
Aha, uh-huh. so Paul's basically going, God is your belly. If, if, if your belly is your God, all right, it's difficult for you to live as part of a citizen of another kingdom. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, look at uh, Ezekiel 16, 49. Ezekiel 16, 49. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Okay, so often we think this primarily. Someone says Sodom and Gomorrah, and we go sexual immorality, homosexuality. I mean, we just think the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sexual immorality, homosexuality. But here's in Ezekiel 16, 49, the, the prophet actually says, This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And they did not help the poor and the needy. All right? <laughs> so I got, I got, sounds a little bit like us. Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, not helping the poor and the needy. All right, so I, I just I want to make the point that overfed is not necessarily helpful to us, okay? So our culture of immorality in the West or our culture of immorality just in the world, because truthfully, it's everywhere. It's blatant everywhere right now, is very tied to the fact that food and comfort is a God to us. If we want to go after a root of immorality in our lives, we want to touch that thing called food because it is primarily about my own comfort. So here's one of the ways I, here's one of the ways I like to help myself in the place of fasting because I, I, all these years later, fasting doesn't necessarily come easier. And it's one of the benefits of getting older, actually. You begin to realize certain things that you said when you were younger. It's like they all come true before your eyes, and you're freaked out by it initially, and then it becomes okay. Remember that thing that you said to your parents when you were like 15, 16, 17, 18, or maybe even when you're 25? And your parents, well, actually, it was your parents who said to you, it's like, man, you know, maybe your dad or your mom is 45 or they're 50, and they're like, man, I, I just still feel like I'm 18. Still feel like I'm 20. I just can't believe I'm 45. Have your parents, any of your parents ever said anything like that? Okay? All right. So this, it is something we say. I remember when my parents said that, and I remember the thought that went through my mind, and I didn't say it out loud. It was like, okay, that's good. I'm glad you feel that, but just so you know, you really look 45, and you really act 45. All right, so that, that's the thought that went through my mind. I'm like, that's called denial. I thought in my mind, it's like they're in denial. They're clearly 45. I mean, they're clearly 50, all right? So don't do this whole like, man, I still feel like I'm 20. Don't do that because it's like you're just kind of in denial. But now that I'm there, I is my parents, okay? And my kids are looking at me going, my, my, you know, my kids are looking at me, and I find myself saying the same thing. My gosh, it's weird. Like, either I need counseling or I really, there are still days I feel like I'm 20. You know, like, I wake up every morning and I go, like, how did this happen? Now, here's the beauty of it. Now, here's the beauty of this for for those of you that maybe are a little bit older in the room or those of you who are going to, you know, in 20 years be a little bit older than you are right now. All right, here's the beauty of it. Here's what the realization that has come to me. You know what? Your parents are not primarily in denial. It's actually real. You know why? Because we are more spirit than we are flesh. Like we really do think of ourselves. So here's what we do. 
it's, it's related to, we think of ourselves here, we think of ourselves in this kingdom, we think of ourselves primarily as this. We are just, this is me, this is my personality, this is Murray, this is who I am. Oh, I mean, this is, this, is, this is my strengths, these are my weaknesses, this is just who I am, this is my personality. So we think it's all tied up in my physical body, and our spirit is like that thing that it's like, I don't know, spirit, I don't know what that is, we'll figure that out later. But understand this, what you know and feel about yourself, your personality, who you are. What's your name? Caleb. Caleb, in the age to come, you will still be who you are. Like your personality, your nature, you will be only perfected. Everything that was perfect about the way that God made you, everything that was perfect about the way that God made your personality, when he knit you together and he had a dream in his heart about who Caleb was going to be, is going to be fully realized. But you're not going to be just a completely different person. You're going to be Caleb. You're gonna, like all of those dreams that you have in your heart are going to be real. So what you think about yourself is actually more spirit. Think about it. Like those, like you've heard the stories about the near-death experiences. People are lying on a hospital table, and they don't even know that they've died, but they're like looking at themselves from above. Why? Why? <laughs> because what you feel about yourself is actually more spirit than it is flesh. Your awareness of yourself, you're actually more aware of your spirit than you are your body. And what you think is, is really just all your flesh is your spirit. You're made in the image of God as spirit. That's what makes us different than every other part of creation. All right? So when you're 45, you're going to have those days where you go, man, I feel like 20. And here's what you go. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is me, and I'm going to feel like this forever. You're, you're going to, like, you're always going to have that. Like, you're going to be 70, and your body may be failing you, but you're going to go, I, I just... I, I still internally, my spirit feels so young. Why? Because it's going to live forever. That's why the Bible can say, you, you know, that's why the Bible can say you're going to die. And the Bible can say you're not going to die. Okay? Because your body is going to die. But your spirit is not going to die. And there will be that moment where your body actually gives way. But your spirit just keeps right on going. And it will feel ageless forever. <laughs> that's the reality. So here, here's what you got to know. If I am more spirit than I am flesh, even now, even in this life, here's what I want to do. I want to feed my spirit. I don't want to just feed my flesh. I want to feed my spirit. Because you can be young on the inside. You know, you know, you meet those people that are 70, 80, like Lauren and Darlene Cunningham or some of those people. You just meet them and you're like, I want to be like that. And you meet these other people that are like, oh. They're just so cranky, and there's so much pain, and there's so much bitterness, and there's so much brokenness. And you go, okay, if I choose, I want to be like that. Okay, you know how to make it till you're 70, 80, 90, just with bright eyes, big smile on your face, happy and full of faith? Feed your spirit. Don't feed your flesh. Feed your spirit first, okay? So that's primarily what fasting does. F fasting makes you aware that you are spending a lot of energy feeding your flesh and a not, not a lot of energy feeding your spirit. Okay? So spend more time feeding your spirit. It's one of the things that you want to feel. Here's what I do when I start to get hungry when I'm fasting. I go, God, I, want my, I, want, I don't want my body to be the things. I don't want my flesh to be the things that leads me. This, th this body, I'm going to cast off. I'm going to get a new one. This spirit, I'm going to have forever. I don't want to be led primarily by my flesh. I want to be led by my spirit. 
So, for example, when I start to fast and I feel hungry, I ask myself the question, if I'm not in the word this morning, did I feel hungry? If you don't eat for a whole day, do you feel like you're going to starve? Do you feel like you're going to die? If you don't read the Bible for a whole day, do you feel like you're going to starve? Do you feel like you're going to die? That's what you're supposed to know, okay? You're supposed to feel the fact that when you, you this is, we should, that we should hunger for the word more than we hunger for food, and most of us in this room do not. And I'm just going to include myself in that list. Okay, let's just be honest with ourselves, right? If I told you right now that you're not going to eat for the next seven days, there's going to be no food. Holly just said, hey, change of plans, we're headed out into the mountain, and we are not eating for the next seven days. We would all freak out. But if Holly said, hey, we're, taking a, we're not going to read the Bible for the next seven days, we'd be like, ooh, yeah, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound right, but I'll be okay. Like, we just wouldn't have the same response, would we? So, <laughs> primarily, here's what I want. I want to actually, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, I, I, I want to feel that, like, oh, God, the truth is, I like mood, because this, this is what this means. The truth is, I like food more than I like God. Right? I mean, if at the end of the day, if someone says, skip, skip an entire day of food, and by the end of the day, all I can feel is this groaning on the inside of me, literally, like my body starts to speak. All right? <laughs> but if I miss a day in the word, it feels like it's totally fine. It's like, no, I'll, be, I'll be fine. All right? That tells me something. That tells me what I love more. Okay? And at the end of the day, that's kind. Like, don't try to avoid that pain. That's painful to me even as I say it. I go, no, that's really true. Because there's a lot of times I love food more than I love God, and I arrange my whole schedule around when I'm going to eat and when I'm not going to eat, but I don't do that with the word. And so I just figure all of those things out, and my whole social life is based around food, not really around the food of God. All right, So it's an awareness. It's a wake me up now, God, because I don't want to be woken up later thinking that I was super spiritual, radical, spiritually radical. But at the end of the day, it was just because I was a bunch of group of people that were excited, and I didn't actually have... The, the hunger for God in my own heart. It's the hunger for God in our own heart that's actually going to cause us to survive at the end of the day. So just let yourself feel it. Like, don't try to deny it. Like, right now, I'm feeling it myself, okay? So I'm going, ah! Like, I'm preaching to myself, going, I know, God. I, mostly, I love food more than I love you, and I'm sorry. I want to love you more than I love food, and I want to arrange my life more around you than I do around food. And then food is just an indicator of every other thing that we love more than God. All right? So what happens is the thing that w when, we, when we dull, here's what we do. We want to dull our flesh, okay, and we want to, we, we want to uh, awaken our spirit with the word of God. Okay? When Jesus said, I have food that you know not of, what's he talking about? He's talking about his word. Okay, like, I'll tell you what's going to sustain you. It's my word is going to sustain you. I have food that you know not of. So here's the thing. Jesus wants to give us unbelievable pleasure this side of eternity, even before he returns, even before we're in our glorified bodies. But we cannot know that pleasure if we're finding all of our pleasure in the comforts of this world. Okay? And food is like the easiest thing to wake us up and go, ah, I love the world more than I love God. And just be honest with God about that and ask him to help you. Don't deny it. Go, oh, man, that's like, that's too much. Like, no, I really do love God. I'm here. I wouldn't be here if I didn't love God. No, it's true. We love God. I, I, I'm not trying to say you don't love God. You do love God. 
But we love God weak, and we want to love God more. Okay, so fasting leads us into greater intimacy with Jesus. What we did yesterday in the Word when we were praying and singing the Bible and just singing it together, gazing on the glory of the gospel of the beauty of Jesus, you do that and you mix in a little fasting, take away food, and I believe it's an acceleration into the things of God in your life. So, again, warning. Fasting can become religious. Religious people who fasted two times a week killed Jesus, okay? Warning. Fasting can become so religious. It's like, man, I heard that message last week. I'm fasting two days a week. Aren't I awesome? Whoa, religious, okay? No, we way more want to feel the God. The truth is I love lesser pleasures more than I love you. Help me to love you more. I'm going to intentionally move some of these things out of the way, and I'm weak and broken, and I need you. Okay, stay in that place. Okay? I'm going to pause there. Any questions related to fasting or any other subject that we've covered in the last few days? Which one? Yeah, can you stand? Thank you. So if it's, like, always for intimacy, what do you say about, like, fasting for, like, like, say, say, like, our outreach location or stuff like that. Like, if it's always supposed to be just for intimacy, like, is there times when there's, like, a certain breakthrough? Okay, that's a great question. Um, uh, great question. I'm really glad you asked it. First of all, th they're not separate. So what we have to know is that our power, our power in our and our authority comes from the place of intimacy. So, for example, take the story of Esther in the Bible. Okay, I'll just take the story of Esther in the Bible. The reason that Esther was able to cause breakthrough for the nation is because of her intimacy with the king. Okay, that was, that was a picture. That was for us. Okay, your position is primarily in the place of intimacy. We're, we're, our goal is intimacy, but from the place of intimacy, it is also our greatest power. Okay, so they're not separate. It's not like, oh, this is all about me basking in the glory of intimacy. That's not that. That's not that. What you have to understand is in the intimate place of relationship is where your power is. It's, it just is. It's where your power is. So if you want breakthrough on your outreach, yes, from the place of intimacy, go after breakthrough. But breakthrough is not actually your first goal. Intimacy is your first goal. Why? Because it's actually God's first goal with you. God's first goal with you is intimacy, not breakthrough. He's going to bring breakthrough through your intimacy. He doesn't, he just, he wants a partner that's intimate. It's what he wanted at the beginning. It's, way the, it's the way that the kingdom functions. The, the kingdom doesn't function, like the government of God doesn't function apart from intimacy. So there's a lot of things that we can do in our, here's the scary thing, there's a lot of things that we can do in our own power just because maybe we have charismatic personalities or, you know, maybe we, like, have natural leadership gifting. And the truth is, if we're not doing those things out of intimacy with God, the Bible tells us that all of those good works are going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. That's terrifying, right? I can do a ton of good works for the kingdom, but if they're not based in the place of intimacy, they're going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. Terrifying reality that I don't want to waste my life. That, that's, this is why, I, does, does that make sense? Okay. So, hear me 
hear me say this. God wants to bring breakthrough more than we want to bring breakthrough. But he's not going to do it apart from our intimacy. Another question. Is that a hand back there? Yeah, okay. I don't know. (laughs) What's the best way to guard against religious, like, attitudes? I I think, I mean, I think I've told you some of the things I do. Like, for example, I do the timeout test. You know, like, if I'm putting myself in timeout when I sin, I go, oh, you're just being religious right now, Murray. Stop it. Or I do the, is my, is, is, if I'm fasting, am I, like, am I propping myself up now? Am I just, sometimes, this is so confusing, I realize. Sometimes you can replace the prop of social media with the prop of fasting. Like, you can go, okay, I'm not going to I'm not gonna do social media. I'm going to fast. And then I go, I kind of start to feel prideful about my fasting. And you're like, ah! Okay, so you're constantly warring against your flesh at the end of the day because the religious spirit that is negative to us it, it is constantly at us. So it's difficult, I realize. But I would, I would just press into the place of intimacy, relationship. It's like Jesus said to the Pharisees. It's like, you know the law and the prophets. Like, you know all the stuff. Like, you know, like, all the outlines and all the terms and all the definitions and all that stuff. And he said, but you don't come to me. If your activity is not leading you into intimacy with Jesus and real love for people that causes you to go and actually serve and love and give yourself wholeheartedly, then I think you're, you're getting lost in religiosity. So it's got to, I mean, it's, 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 it's got to be, you got to love the word. you got to love the place of prayer. It's got a place that you want to be. That's, that's what you want. Your activity got to be moving you there. It's got to be moving you into more time with him and more time loving and serving others and, and dying to yourself. And then you can war against religiosity in that context. Question? Uh, so, like, can you just touch a bit on, like, what regular prayer and fasting looks like along with, like, the, without getting into, like, the religious, like, oh, we're going to fast two days a week, every single week, and then you, like, just. Yeah, I mean, the, the scary part is it can look the same. <laughs> Meaning, like, someone fiery going after intimacy with Jesus can say, I'm going to fast two days a week, and it's not religious. And someone who's really kind of basing their relationship with God on now on their track record because they're fasting, it's doing the same things, but it's not, it's not producing intimacy at the end of the day. So it's hard to just go, this is what it looks like when it's not religious, and this is what it looks like when it is religious. It's, it's hard to do that, okay? I think, I think the best way to fast is a pattern of fasting that is just you and God. You're not having a ton of conversations about it. You're, you're not like posting about your fast on social media, you're not, you know, it's just kind of a regular sort of thing in your life. Like, maybe you just say, I'm going to skip lunch two times a week, and I'm just going to set a time regularly in my schedule. I like, I like the, the regular rigor of it. I like extended fasts. I, I like extended fasts, and I think we should do extended fasts, but I think we should be in more of a lifestyle of fasting, that is, um, is, it includes food, but also other things. Like, I want to put other things to death, other lesser pleasures to death in my life to feed my spirit at the end of the day. So it could be little things, like I'm just going to, like one of the things that was, I was so aware of after my first few encounters 
um, with cultures that didn't have the prevalence of food that we have is that really that there are so many people in the world that just live on one meal a day. And so I actually, in the context of fasting and going, I want to prepare myself for whatever is ahead of me in my own life. Uh, I, 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 I want to be able to live in a place where I'm really okay if I just have one meal a day. Like I'm just okay. Like it's not a big deal. Like I, you don't die, just so you know. Like you just, it's not that big a deal. So, so part of it was just practical, and then part of it also became just part of my fasting routine that I just, I just like to, on a regular basis, skip meals. And, and here's the deal. It's not just about skipping meals. It's, a, it's actually about being in the word and conversation with Jesus at the same time. Because sometimes just skipping meals can make us feel religious without actually the pain of going into the word and feeling um, our, our ache for more of God. Does that help a little bit? Okay. Yes. What's your experience with, like, fasting and exercise? Is that something you can do together or not so much? I mean, it depends on your fast. You know, I think you can exercise on one meal a day. I mean, I, I, ju I just think your body is really able to do that. Now, <laughs> I want to be careful because in our world, I know that there's a ton of issues with food and eating disorders. And I just, if that is a thing that you struggle with, Please don't fast. Um, please don't fast on your own. Please, like, have conversations with your leaders. And just, like, because fasting can so, in our world, it's just like, man, if I just skip a few meals, it's spiritual and I get to lose weight. It's awesome. Okay? So don't do that. Okay? Just be careful about that. It's, it's, a, it's a trap. Okay? So I think it's possible to fast and exercise. Clearly, when you're on a three-day no-food-only-water fast, just, like, don't, like, I just, I just wouldn't go, like, part of it is, I mean, we also, exercise can also be a god to us. All right? So maybe fast exercise, too. <laughs> just, like, like don't, don't feel like, oh, my gosh, I can't, I can't fast and exercise both, therefore I can't fast. If that's true, then, then exercise has become more important to you than fasting or God. Okay? Okay, so um, if, like, fasting is a way to, like, mourn for the Messiah to come, then that, like, leads me to the question, then, like, why did the Messiah himself fast? And, like, obviously there's other reasons to fast. So then why wouldn't the disciples still have a reason to fast? That's a great question. Um, I believe what Jesus, number one, Jesus was making a point in Matthew 9. And going, he's, he was like really trying to like force us out of a religious mindset that had taken hold of the people. All right. So he goes, no, uh, my disciples are not going to fast. Okay. So, um, and then, and then you go, and then you ask the question, well, why did Jesus fast? Okay. So I I believe that Jesus fasted, number one, to show us the way to the Father. Okay, so I think Jesus was actually, he was feeling the absence of his relationship with the Father. So there was an absence that Jesus was feeling that caused him to fast. Right? Jesus, the 40-day the fast that Jesus did in the wilderness was primarily about, uh, about his, like, relationship with the Father. He would always, like, Jesus would always take that time away to be with the Father. So I think there was an absence there. 
I think Jesus was trying to prove a point with the disciples that fasting doesn't make you extra religious. It actually is about relationship in the same way that circumcision doesn't necessarily make you a Jew or following the law doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. You know, like like when the Pharisees were mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, he goes, don't you know uh, don't you don't you remember that story where David and his men they kind of they were really hungry so they 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 were uh, they broke they kind of like got into the temple and took the food that was like only for the priests to eat it so he had this like blatant sort of like disrespect to the law illustration to kind of go to kind of like go no this isn't just about the law it's about relationship so primarily I think I think I think. To summarize, Jesus was feeling the absence of his intimacy with the Father that he knew in heaven. And I think Jesus was making the point that my disciples are not going to be fast because I'm with them. And he was wanting it to be a blatant statement to the Pharisees and to the world to make a point. Yes. Um, regarding extended fasts, what he what's your thought on like the grace of like having like having grace for extended fasts and when you pray about if you ex ex should extend them but there's like the grace is gone do you feel like we should stop because the grace is gone or if we should keep going of like spiritual warfare and all that great question so what you're saying when you say grace to fast you're meaning when I say I have grace to fast I'm meaning wow I mean this is like easier than I thought it was going to be so I have I have, an, I have, like, I feel empowered to fast right now. Grace to fast. Is that kind of what you mean? Okay. So grace to fast, meaning I set myself to do a three-day fast, and, um, and I, I go, wow, this, this is, like, I have, I would say, like, if I'm at dinner time and I'm okay, like, I'm not clawing at the refrigerator, you know, like, I would say, oh, I have grace to fast. Okay, so that's, that's what I mean by grace to fast. Like, oh, God, give me some food. Okay, so, so, so recognizing that, I think, yes, I love grace to fast, but I think sometimes we have to also press past our feelings um, to just say yes to a three-day fast. And, I, and I'm, I'm just, I think there should be, I think when we fast, we also don't want to be religious about our fasting. So like, oh my gosh, I had a chip. I, I feel so accused right now by the enemy because I ate that chip and my whole fast is ruined. Okay, don't do that. Okay, just kind of, I mean, I love Mike Pickle. goes just, just like press delete and move on. Okay, just like don't worry about it. Like, okay, so you were out with some friends and they didn't know you were fasting and you were so tempted, you ate something and you're like, my whole fast is ruined. No, it's not. Just like start again tomorrow. Right. It's just not it's not about how well I did. <laughs> OK, it's about the fact that I'm actually I mean, Jesus just loves the yes. He's just like, don't worry about. It. So you had a meal. Just say yes to it again tomorrow. I love you. This is awesome. OK. So let's say we are doing like like and we're in the DTS um, because it's such a big like organization where with so many people the bible says like to really not be seen by others but jesus was in isolation when he fasted so it was kind of easy for him not to tell others but let's say like we're in this big setting and someone asked what would be like the proper way to be like 
No. You're, or like, do you think it's religious to be like, oh, I can't tell anybody? So, um, yeah, I think it's religious to say I can't tell anybody. Um, I think Jesus is making a point. Again, he's not making a law. He's going, don't make it so public that you're fasting. That's not the point. The point is me and you. I'm wanting this. I'm not, I, it's not about, hey, everybody, I'm fasting. Aren't I awesome? Okay, Jesus is making that point. He's not making a law that says if you tell someone your fasting is void. All right? I think fasting is co in community is the, best, is the best way to fast. And so that's where I would go. I would take the one verse that says, and when you fast, don't be like these guys, like wash your face, do this. I think that's right. I, I think we shouldn't carry this like, oh, my gosh, I'm fasting. It's so horrible. I think we shouldn't do that. I think we should wash our face, get up in the morning, and just, like, go for it like we're not fasting. But I think we should fast in community. I think the counsel of the word is, like, the whole counsel, Genesis to Revelation, is, like, what we do together is powerful. Okay, so I don't live my life separate from the community of, of believers. So I love to fast. The truth is I'm a weak faster, so I like to fast with other people who are also fasting, clearly, so that when I show up, and super practical, uh, for a couple of reasons, I don't want to show up into a room where everyone's got Chick-fil-A except me. You know, like, I'm just like, oh, don't do that to yourself, Okay. So I, I like to fast with a few other people so that when I show up to the room, uh, and it's not, it doesn't have to become mandatory, but everyone can honor the fast at the end of the day. We can go like, you know what, I'm not fasting, but I'm not going to bring Chick-fil-A to the room today because I know that four of the seven people are fasting, so I'm going to eat before I go. I'm going to honor their fast. I just think it's helpful. Okay? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I think you should tell your team. I think you should tell someone. I don't, I don't think, I don't think, the, Jesus, the point Jesus is making is, is not, I want you to fast in isolation. That's not the point. The point is, I don't want it to become, the, I, I don't want your pride in fasting to become a hindrance in our relationship, because the whole point of fasting is that we go deeper in our relationship. So he's trying to keep us from the pitfall, okay? So if you're, you're talking to your team about, I'm going to fast on this day and this day, um, then, then that's primarily because you want to grow in intimacy, not because you're wanting to go, I'm so awesome, I, I'm, hopefully. Okay, this is going to be our last question. I'm going to move on. Um, you mentioned like doing a three-day fast and feeling like, kind of called to do that. If you did your three-day fast and it felt like you still hadn't like, grown any intimacy or anything, do you think that's God inviting you to go longer, or is that like, oh, I'll try again in a two-week's time? Yeah, that's such a great question. Wow. I love, first of all, I love how many questions you have, and I love how hungry you are. This is amazing. So let me say this. Um, Three-day fast, and you still feel like you want to fast longer? Uh, oh, you, uh, let me, first of all, if you feel like, wow, I, I think I want to fast longer, it's like, go for it. Like, yes. That's great. Um, if it's healthy for you and, 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 and all of that, then I would say yes. I think, um, Second part of your question is evading me right now. Oh, did, like, you encounter God or do you feel greater intimacy? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, first of all, I should have said this, but the truth is normally in, in the fast, it's not like there's going to be massive encounter. Like, don't go, I'm going to fast and all of a sudden I'm going to have, like, unbelievable dreams and I'm going to feel so intimate and this is going to be unbelievable because you'll be so disappointed. 
all right? Just three-day fast is difficult because the truth is your body is detoxing, okay? So in a three-day fast, if you're doing a water fast, your body is detoxing from all the stuff that you eat that you don't even know is not necessarily all that great for you. So you're detoxing, and you're going to feel miserable the first three days. After the first three days, you actually start to feel better. Like on an extended fast, here's what happens. You actually become more physically and mentally alive. Like it's, it's the truth of the Daniel principle of, of I'm going to like eat simpler and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to rise above the rest. Like I remember being in my third week of the fast going, my mind is sharper than I can remember it for a long time, and I'm quite enjoying this. Like, like wow, this is amazing. Okay, so understand that the first three days of the fast are going to be difficult. Even in a 40-day fast, okay, you're, what, what will happen in a 21-day fast is um, you're going to experience kind of this like, this is awesome, wow, detox, amazing, um, and it's going to feel physically good. Probably by the time you get to 40 days, it becomes miserable, okay, because now it's just, just like so long without food. Oh, God, help us. Um, all right, so, but, where was I going with that? Oh, but even in a 40-day fast, even in a 40-day fast, it doesn't mean you're going to have, it doesn't mean you're going to have a, a, a Apostle John on the island of Patmos sort of experience, okay? Just understand that, all right, because normally the fast is not glorious, all right? It feels super weak, and you, you come out feeling, like, disappointed if you're expecting unbelievable encounter. But let me tell you this. It will not disappoint in the long run. Normally what happens then is in the day-to-day, there are more encounters in the Word and with God. So those grow slowly over time. It's not just in the moment. Okay? So I'm going to pause there because I need to move on. And partly because I, I want you to relate to fasting in a proper way and partly because I want us to sing again. Okay, so here's what I want to do right now for a moment. I, I just, I just want to say, um, Holly, I just want to say to you and the leadership team of Fire and Fragrance, first of all, the hunger represented in this room is represented of your leadership, and I just want to honor you for that. That's amazing. <clears throat> really. Like, they wouldn't have that hunger if you didn't have that hunger. So I just want to honor you. And also, I just want to say to you and your leadership team and all of you in the room, fasting is a big subject. And don't, um, I want us to be wild and reckless. And at the same point in time, I want us to, like, uh, if you really know that, you know what, before I fast, I need to have a conversation with leadership, please do that. All right, there just needs to be wisdom in the midst of all of that, okay? So I just want to submit everything that I just said because without having, like, you could talk about fasting for a week and not hit everything that you feel like you need to hit so that people don't get into pitfalls. So I just want to be careful, okay? Thank you. Thank you for having grace on me. Okay, so here's what I want to do for a moment right now. I want to I back up this line. Over here we had Genesis 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move Genesis 1 over here for a moment. Genesis 1, okay, just because it's my last day and I get to. Oh, you guys. You guys are so encouraging, all right? Sorry. No, it wasn't. I was actually going to say that's my worst one yet, but okay, thank you. I appreciate the encouragement. All right, so here, I've just moved this. What I've done right now is just moved this line a little bit. And here is, I, I think, one of our most important conversations when we're thinking about 
the kingdom, when we're thinking about the gospel, when we're thinking about the way we live, when we think our response to the word, when we think about all of these elements of living for a kingdom, which, by the way, I would, I would, uh, I would, uh, I would uh, challenge you or just kind of provoke you to go into the word and just look for the word kingdom. And I love it when Jesus says the kingdom is like this. That's like, that is super clear. And I would just start looking at it, like, because I want to live for that kingdom. So what's the kingdom like? Okay, so ask that question. So that, but here's what's important for us to understand when we understand the kingdom and even understand fasting in its, all his ways is we have to know who is the king of that kingdom. Because unless we know that, we won't fully understand all of his ways in the kingdom. And, I, and, and there will be mysteries. I mean, I had, conversation, I had a conversation this morning about, uh, who did I have a conversation with about something that was hard for me to answer? Where are you? There's a guy. You're not in the room right now. Oh, yeah. What did you ask me again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm just, I'm just going to say it real quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys are you guys are quick. All right, so um, so what's your name again? AJ. AJ asked me. He asked me. He's like, so I don't really get that whole David Saul thing because if you read earlier in the story, the evil spirit that Saul had actually was given to him by sent to him by God. So you just go like, ah, like how does that work? So God sent the spirit, but then the the instrument that prophesied got rid of the spirit. And how do I? What do I do with all that? Now, the truth is, um, here, here's, here's something I want to say. Number one, you don't always have to have all the answers. Like, it's really okay to go, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I just don't know. That's so what I said to AJ. I go, oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Like, I, it's like, d the kingdom of God is so vast, and God is so great that you will not have all the answers. All right? You, you just won't. You won't have all the answers. You, you won't have the ability to answer every question. Now, do I want to be diligent? Do I want to study? Do I want to have, do, do have the ability to have a conversation with an unbeliever and know the word? Yes. Okay, but don't fear the mysteries of God, and here's why. You've got to know who God is in his nature even before creation so that you can trust him in that moment and go, wait a second, what do I do with, with that God who sends the Spirit but then plays the instrument that God gave him so that the spirit leaves, and I don't know what to do with all that. So there are moments where you just go, I trust your leadership. So what I did in that moment was like, okay, like I don't really know the answer to this, but if God, number one, if God is able to send the evil spirit to Saul, number one, I know he's all-powerful, and he is powerful, and he has authority over the evil spirits. Okay, that's comforting to me, all right? I don't have to have all the answers, but in my relationship with God, that can be comforting to me. I go, at the end of the day, God has power over all of this dominion of darkness, and he exercises it when he wants to. And he will use evil spirits. He will use Satan and his evil minions <laughs> to, to, to actually help him accomplish something if he wants to. Uh, I don't get that. I don't get how all of that works. But I know uh, I have enough trust in who God is to trust his activity. All right? I don't primarily have to have all the answers, but I'm going to trust God. It's just, like, it's just like my kids don't have all the answers about who I am or why I do certain things. But at the end of the day, they got to trust that I'm good and I have their best in mind for them. Okay? So... 
So, who is God here before time? Because I believe that who God is here determines who he is throughout history. And then that's how I approach him in life. All right? So, who is, who is the king? What's his nature? What's his character? We've been looking at it. And I want to look specifically at the father today. I want to look specifically at that person of God who is the father. Why does he do the things he does? Why is his government a government of what? What are the four things we talked about? A government of worship, a government of intercession, of unity, a government of love. Why? Okay, so why? It's not random. It's because of who he is. Why can I trust God? It's not random. It's not because I have all the answers. It's because I know who he is. And I will never, I will never understand this side of eternity. I will never understand all of his ways. I'm going to seek him out with all of my heart as much as I can, but I will never understand all of his ways. And I'm going to trust him until I stand before him and I see him. And the truth is, I will spend, part of my eternity will be spent discovering more about God that I didn't know. Forever and ever and ever, I think I'm going to be fascinated at the revelation of who God is. So a billion years after Jesus returns, I'll still go, oh, I cannot believe that you're like this. And it will fascinate our hearts. Okay, so I want to look at the Father. We want to fix our gaze. This is one of those moments we're going to gaze on the beauty of God, who is God, okay? David did this. This is one of his preoccupations. You know, Psalm 27, this one thing I desire, to gaze upon your beauty, to, to dwell in your courts all of my days. It was, a, it was the preoccupation of David. I would love to just have a week to talk about David. And his life and the way he lived because he really was an example to us. Here's this guy who has this prophetic word when he's 17, but he doesn't see it fully unfold until way later in life with all kinds of obstacles. And he becomes really the most powerful, wealthy man in the land. And at the end of the day, all of his promises are fulfilled, but somehow there's still only one thing he wants. There's just one thing I want. I'm the king. I'm the most powerful. I'm the wealthiest. I can do anything I want, but there's only one thing I want. I want to gaze on your beauty all day long. I want to dwell in your courts. Like, what does that look like? And there was something that David knew about God that caused this holy, fiery preoccupation. And it's what we want. I mean, it's our safeguard. That It's a seal on our hearts that fiery preoccupation with who God is becomes a seal on our hearts. All right, so this is why we do this. And it really can become a dangerous preoccupation. Gazing on the beauty of God can become dangerous. Because if you gaze a little bit, you want to gaze a little more, and then you want to gaze a little more, and you become distracted, and people are trying to figure out why you're living life the way you do, and they're going, what is wrong with you? All you you're like, you're, you're in the word, and, and no, no, you're not coming to that movie with us because you want to what? You know, you know it's just like, like, it becomes a dangerous occupation, and people begin to think you're a little off. And all of a sudden, you find you can't take your eyes off of him. And, and you just, that 15 minutes turned into 30, and the 30 turned into 45, and 45 turned into 60. And, and it's becoming that preoccupation in your life. 
And it's not just you, but it happens to other people. And that preoccupation becomes not only gazing on the beauty of God, but the preoccupation of gazing on the beauty of God turns into a preoccupation with loving what God loves and giving yourself to love what God loves. So we can't stop this reality until that thing happens that happens to me with coffee, you know, where it's like I'm going to do whatever it takes to have coffee the next morning. Or I'm going to do whatever it takes to be in his presence today. That, that conviction takes a hold of us. So let's begin just the conversation about who was God before Genesis 1. Who was God that created everything? Because if I have a little bit of understanding of that lens, I can understand who he is and what he's doing in my life and what he's doing right now. And if we look at Genesis 1, we may think, for example, that God is this all-powerful ruler. All-powerful. Let's just look at that all-powerful. He's all-powerful. Like, who is God before Genesis 1? He's all-powerful. He's clearly all-powerful. But is that really the foundation of who God is, the all-powerful reality of God? And I'm not questioning whether or not he's all-powerful. You know that Adolf Hitler used to refer to God as all-powerful. He liked the fact that God was all-powerful. And there's been a number of tyrannical leaders throughout history who have liked the fact that God was all-powerful. And they liked, they actually used religion to actually gain power and manipulate people and nations. So knowing God is all-powerful, or only knowing God is all-powerful, I believe causes us to miss something about who God is. It's clear that Hitler did not really know God. He might have known the fact that Hitler was all-powerful, but he didn't really know God. All right, so maybe that's not where we want to begin. Now, of course, I'm not, I'm not denying that God's all-powerful. He is all-powerful. But I'm asking the question is, at the foundation of who God is, who is he? How do I relate to him? Or so maybe in Genesis 1 we say God's the ruler. God is the ruler over all things. He holds all things in the palm of his hand. He's the king who, execute, who executes judgment. He, he's, he's the ruler of all things. There's no one greater than he is. Surely God first must be the ruler of all things in order for him to do what he has done. But if, if God is the ruler, then the problem becomes that I have broken the rules and then my salvation is probably a, is, is only about a way for God to, 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 to let me into the kingdom when I don't, even though I can't keep all the rules. Like, so if God's primarily the ruler and I'm the person who's breaking all the rules, then primarily my relationship with God becomes what you will kind of let me off the hook for in order to get into that kingdom. If I'm relating to him as primarily as a ruler, and if that's what my relationship with God looks like, then my relationship with God can sometimes look like my relationship with, like, the local policeman. You know, who's the, who's the guy who's in charge of making sure that I follow the rules in my car or in public, which for me is a little difficult sometimes. Right? In our first year of marriage, um, <laughs> I, we would drive, my wife had this little Saturn, uh, and we would drive it because it was really great gas mileage and of course we're trying to save money we still are <laughs> and uh that doesn't that never changes uh so 
So we're driving this little Saturn, and um, we had to take a couple road trips to do partner development, to, like, continue to connect with our partners and raise finances for our ministry. And, of course, we're going to take the Saturn because we're going to put a lot of miles on it, and, um, and it's got the best gas mileage. But the problem with that Saturn is it didn't have cruise control. And so me in a car on a freeway without cruise control is just not good. I mean, I'm not naturally good at staying within the lines. I mean, that's just not naturally my personality. All right, I don't even like the lines on the road. You know, those, you know there's those states. Like, Missouri is one of those states that has the rumble strips right on the line. Like, so there are states that on the white line over here that keeps, you know, the, the good white line on a freeway, the one over here, like, that keeps me from going off of the freeway, they, they, there's the white line, and the rumble strips are white, right on the white line. Like, I have no grace. There's no ability for me to just, like, look around a little bit and, like, maybe hit that white line a little bit. I'm not going off the road. I'm just, like, I touch it a little bit, and I hit the, I mean, Blake drove with me this week. He saw that I'm not good at those rumble strip things. I hit them, okay? So states, I like states that have the white line, and then there's a couple feet, and then there's the rumble strip over here, and then there's a couple feet of shoulder left. I realize this is a, it's a pointless conversation other than to say I hate rumble strips on white lines because they keep you in those lines so rigid. It's just like, what? You don't want me to look anywhere on this road trip. So lines. I don't like lines, okay? This is not good, all right? So the line of speeding all right, is, is always a little gray in my theological book. I apologize if that's difficult for you. Okay, so, but, but it's not intentional. Like, I don't intentionally, well, sometimes I do. So I don't intentionally speed, okay? Like, maybe there's the, what, what it's like, some, like a couple of my friends are like, they know police officers and they're like, the, 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 the mantra of police officers is like, eight miles over the speed limit, like eight, you're great, nine, you're mine kind of thing, like, so eight miles over the speed limit, I'm going to let you go, nine, I got you, okay, so I, I think five is really full of grace, so all that to say, I'm in the car, uh, this little Saturn, there's no cruise control, and I'm not intentionally speeding, but before you know it, I can literally be going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit without even thinking about it, I'm talking, I'm looking around, uh, I'm doing a ton of things besides actually looking at my speedometer, all right, so all of that caused me, in our first year of marriage, to have five speeding tickets. Mm -hmm. Five. I know. It was difficult. So in Missouri, if I'd have had one more, I'd have had my license taken away from me. Do you know how humiliating that would be? <laughs> if your wife drive you to work every day. And yeah. So, so... Now, let's just say for a moment that one of those times, and this never happens, I've never been stopped by a police officer, and he's let me go. Never. Every time Deborah, so Deborah can drive. Now, first of all, Deborah can, like, Deborah will speed more than I will speed sometimes, but she is like a hawk watching the road for any kind of cars that might look like police officers. Me, on the other hand, I'm like looking at everything but the road while we drive. Okay, so, so she is like a hawk looking and she's super aware of what's going on, okay? So, and if she gets pulled over, she, she's never, ever gotten a speeding ticket, even though she's been pulled over a couple of times, all right? So, so, I, st I, I feel like I need to go to counseling over this one, 
Okay, so I'm in the car, and let's just say, for example, one of those times like that I'm speeding, and I race by one of those cars. Let's just say like my Saturn is able to go so fast that I'm actually able to get away, and I break off into a side road, off a side road, and I hide, and he doesn't find me, and I don't get a ticket. Let's just say that were to happen, although it wouldn't. Um, or let's just say, for example, the police officer might stop me, like say, hello, 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 Mr. Hebert. Uh, you know, I just wanted to let you know that you're um, been going over a little over the speed limit, and I'm just here to let you know, like, hey, if you could just slow it down, that'd be great. I'm not going to give you a ticket. I've never heard those words ever in my whole life. Never. I'm not going to give you a ticket, but hey, just you just have a good day. Never heard those words in my whole life, okay? So if God, if God is a ruler, and I'm the rule breaker, okay, and I'm primarily relating to God as the one who kind of like, He's kind of like that police officer who, like, that one time he lets me go. And, I, and if that were to happen, I mean, even because I have pain in, in this area of my life, if that were to happen to me where a police officer actually let me go, I would, there, I would be 100 miles down the road still going, I love that police officer. Like, I am so grateful. I would feel all of this gratitude in my heart for the police officer who, who didn't give me a ticket but warned me because my speeding wasn't necessarily intentional. I just was distracted in the moment. All right? So in that moment, if my relationship with God is primarily the one who lets me off the hook, I, the truth is I can be filled with all kinds of gratitude. I'm like, God, thank you for letting me off the hook. Thank you that I'm not going to hell. Thank you for letting me off the hook. But it doesn't necessarily produce love. If I'm primarily relating to God as all-powerful, or if I'm primarily relating to God as the ruler who made a way to let me off the hook, I don't necessarily overflow in love. If he's just kind of become the divine policeman, if my salvation is simply a means of letting me go, will I actually love the ruler. And the truth is, if I if I'm not growing in love, I actually have I don't have the ability to keep the greatest command that God gives us, which is to love him with all my heart, soul and might. If I'm not growing in love in my heart towards God, the ruler or the all-powerful one, I cannot keep the greatest commandment to love him with all my heart. And so we begin to see how important it is that we see God clearly. Because how you see God determines how you relate to him. How you see God determines what you think about him when you read the Bible. Okay? So let's look at what the Bible says about who God is for just a moment. I want you to turn to John 17, 24. John 17, 24. There's a couple passages I want to look at. I want to make a statement. Jesus tells us clearly in John 17, 24, in his relationship, in his conversations with God, in John 17, 24, he addresses God as Father. Father, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world. Okay, do you see that? John 17, 24, before the creation of the world... Jesus refers to God as Father. He says, you loved me as a father 
even before the creation of the world. That's what John 17 says. You'll notice in, a, in, in most of the conversations Jesus has with God, all right, it, he refers to him as father. That's the foundation of his relationship, father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, that's his primary relationship. But in John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, you loved me like a father. You were a father before the creation of the world, Genesis 1, 1. Okay? So right there, we see that God was a father before the creation. He's not just a father because he created us. And therefore, he's kind of like symbolically a father of us. No. Before the foundation of the world, God was already the father and Jesus was the son. He was already a father before creation. We didn't make him a father. Jesus did. And I didn't realize that gets us into the whole thing of the Trinity and figuring that out. But just know this. Before creation, God was a father. He was a father. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the created order... He was a father. So turn to Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. Turn to Proverbs 8. It's important to see this because it really changes the, the way that we relate to God. What you think about God is the most, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. How you relate to him when you read the word is one of the most important things for you de to develop in your life. Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. I'm going to read it for you. When he established the heavens, I was there. Okay, so he, when he established the heavens, I was there. This conversation in Proverbs 8 is Jesus, and he's talking about the Father. So he is the Father. I, in this conversation, is Jesus. When he established the heavens, I was there. All right, so when God, the Father, established the heavens, I, Jesus, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So here in Proverbs 8, we see that even before the foundation of the earth, there was the father and the son. And they created together. And what Jesus says in Proverbs 8 is, I was daily the delight of the father. Jesus knew even before creation that he was daily the delight of the Father. Now, here's the glory of what Jesus says right there in Proverbs 8, is that everything that Jesus had, we now have because of the cross. So that reality of Proverbs 8 is now our reality. I live in that reality every day. I am daily the delight of the Father. I woke up this morning, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I woke up this morning in some accusation. I don't know what it was about. I really don't. I just was like, I had some insecurity. I was like, I was going like, just, just felt like there was accusation towards my leadership, towards what I was talking about. I just felt accusation. And what I do in that moment is I don't agree with the accusation. I can go, I can actually, I can, this little dark cloud can come over me and begin to rain on top of me. 
Or I can go, no, I do not agree with that accusation. I go to Proverbs 8, and I go this morning, what primarily counts is that I am daily your delight. I claim that same promise that Jesus has in Proverbs 8, and I go, I am your delight today. And so this accusation doesn't actually have a place in my life because I know what you think and what you feel about me. So even in Proverbs 8, Jesus is aware that he's daily the delight of the Father. Or look at John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. Somebody stand up and read it for me. John 14, verse 6. Somebody stand up and read it for me. Or us. Read it for us. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, there's another passage. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. All right, so over and over again in the Word of God, the, one of the primary revelations of who he is is Father. This is who God revealed himself to be. Not first creator, not first ruler. Even before he was the creator, he was the Father. And we want to relate to him as the Father. And if God is a father, that means that he is primarily relational. <laughs> it begins to make sense of why. Like, if we're primarily thinking of God as the rule keeper or the all-powerful one, all right, and, and we look at Genesis 1 and we see that God wants intimate relationship with us, that doesn't make any sense. But if I see God as a father who's relational first, like he's first relational, then, then, then Genesis 1 begins to make sense. Genesis 2 begins to make sense. Because what he really wants is to be with me in relationship. If he's, that means that he's a father, he's relational, and he's life-giving. He's the sort of God who, who is first interested in, in what I'm thinking and feeling. It's like, as my, as my kids grow up, all right, so Ellie's 13, the conversation I'm having with her is different than when she was five. And she's having to grow in her own relationship with God. And it has to become not just my relationship with God, but her relationship with God. But what I care most about as she wrestles through some things, as she struggles with truth, which is a good thing, what I care most about in that process is that she's in conversation with me. Why? Because I'm a father. Well, I'm, I'm not so concerned about her behavior right now. I mean, she's great. Don't get me wrong. Okay? Uh, but I'm not. If she was struggling with a massive behavior issue... I would really care about the behavior, but here's what I would care about most is that we were in conversation as we were wrestling through that thing. That's who God is as a father, all right? John 17, 24, Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. So that primary identity of God as a father is seen over and over in the word of God. And here's what I need us to know. I need you to know that there is an accusation against God the Father. And often we agree with the accusation of God the Father. And we can see God the Father in two different ways. I think the, 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 one of the ways that the world or that the kingdom of darkness can often see the Father or portray God. It's one of the reasons we wrestle with, for example, when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Or we talk about God's leadership or, or those kinds of things where, where God's leading everything. And we go, what does that mean? Like, does that mean I don't have any... Does that mean I don't have any control or I don't have any say? If God knows everything, then what's the point? And so we have to wrestle with, 
we have to wrestle with who God is as the perfect leader. We did that yesterday when we talked about shepherd. I mean, he is the father who is a shepherd, and it begins to describe who he is, even in his nature and character. But for me, a lot of times, when I, the, the accusation I have to fight or the picture that I see of God is kind of like my grandfather, even more than my dad. My dad was imperfect, but he was good in a lot of ways. He was great. I love Jesus today because I have great parents and because God's kind, all right? So, but I primarily see my grandfather in this, like, picture of who God is. And you have to know I'm, <clears throat> I'm Mennonite by background, and uh, Mennonites used to have these, like, really large families, all right? So my mom is one of 15 children, one mom, and my dad is one of 11, all right? So, yeah, I know. I have a lot of relatives. I will never be homeless, okay? I will always have a place to stay. <laughs> All right, so, but my, when I was a kid, my grandfather was like, he was a big man. He was taller than I was. He had 15 children. He kind of ruled his house with an iron scepter. I mean, literally, like, in the living room of their house, it was only a place where adults could be, and mostly really adult men, sorry to say. All right, so that just the context for the household when everyone gathered together. So think about it. Fifteen kids, all of them got married, all of them come back to the house, and they have kids. So think about what that looks like. My grandfather's trying to maintain control. I have five or six other cousins born the same year that I was, and so there are kids born every year, and there are grandkids everywhere. It's wild, all right? So my, grand, my grandfather's trying to maintain control, and I never really had, never really had, I never had any kind of a relationship with my grandfather. I respected him. I honored him. I knew that he was in control. I knew that he had power. And the truth is, my grandfather spoke German, and I spoke English, and I could barely have a conversation with him. I was just happy that I could pray in German this little prayer so that he could understand my prayer. All right, so that was my, that was the basis of my, of my relationship with my grandfather. And so my grandfather would sit in this big chair in the corner of the living room, and literally, the grandchildren were to be seen and not heard, and behind the chair in the house, there literally was a horse whip that was about this long, with a tail about this long at the end of it, literally, because he, he loved horses. And so he had that whip behind him, and he never, of course, really used it on us, but it really was a threat, and we really knew that he would if he needed to, even if it was just a little, like, flick. He wasn't abusive in any way, shape, or form, but that whip was behind him, and we knew to stay a, key, a good distance from him. That just was our goal. In their house, their old farmhouse, there was this grate uh, that you could look down from the bedrooms upstairs into the living room, and we would kind of, if we wanted to get a view of that room, we could never get into that room because we'd get in trouble, but if we want to get a view of what was happening in that room, we would look through this grate, and it was the closest we could get to that kind of place where all of the power and everything was happening. Sometimes that's our picture of God. It's just like he's there, he's all-powerful, we know he's good. Like, my grandfather was good. Like, all of his 15 children follow Jesus. That's remarkable. All right? So I know he's good. He was a good man. But he never wanted intimacy with me. He never wanted relationship with me. He mostly wanted me distant. I didn't, have, I didn't ever have real conversations with him. And I kind of had to, like, find a way to get myself in to just kind of see a little bit from the outside. That's often how we approach God. We approach God that same way, like he's sitting over in the corner, maybe he's kind, but I know he's got a whip behind that if I get out of line, he's going to let me know that I'm out of line. 
Okay, often, whether we know it or not, that's the way we approach God. That's the way we read the Bible. That's the way we look at God. But is that who God really is? No. No, and over and over again, of course, the Bible tells us. And I, as, of course, as you have your own children, or even in your relationship with your parents, you're going to know this. I remember the one moment, specifically for me, it began to break in on just really who God was as a father, was when our third daughter was born, and we were living in Colorado, and uh, one, she, she was getting to be of the age where kids should be talking and having little conversations. She was just uh, about two, and so she should have been well on her way in conversation, but she wasn't. And so she was out playing with the other kids in the yard, and there were other kids from the neighborhood coming over, and they were playing, and other kids that were her age or, or older realized that she wasn't talking and really when she she would actually try to have a full conversation with you but she wouldn't use real words so she really would like pretend like she was having a whole conversation with you but they weren't any kind of words I thought for a while she was going to have the gift of languages because it mostly sounded Spanish really like she would say Spanish kinds of words I'm still asking for that for her but it was like mostly uh, not something that you could understand so in the moment in the yard I'm watching them, and I'm noticing the kids begin to talk and point at Eden. Her name's Eden, our third girl. And I'm noticing the kids, as cruel kids can be, laughing and pointing at her in conversation. Now, in that moment, who I am as a father begins to become clear, because if I'm the father that I often think about God as, I would kind of go, whoa, Eden is looking weak. She's kind of embarrassing me right now with her behavior. So I'm going to kind of back away and maybe close the door because I don't want the neighbors to know that that's my daughter and she can't talk and this is kind of humiliating. Do you think that's what was going through my mind? No. In that moment when I'm, I've got my little two-year-old Eden, happiest little girl I've ever seen in my whole life, full of joy, she really is like Eden, just that picture of beauty. She is that person. She, that's her personality. So she's there. She's mostly unaware of the accusations that are coming to her. And I'm standing in the door in that moment, and I'm telling you what. There is like I'm, I'm noticing the conversations. I'm seeing the pointing. And what happens is there's like this fiery zeal that rises up on the inside of me, and I'm like swooping out into the front yard to pick her up and tell her who she is. Like, Eden, you are so beautiful. You're so perfect. You make me and your mom so happy in everything you do. Our delight is in you. You are, I mean, I just begin to go through who she is in that moment. Because of a fire on the inside of me. That fire is called love because I'm a father. Now, if I, the Bible says, if I, being an earthly father, can have a little bit of thoughts that are like love, how much more the heavenly father. That idea that in my weakness, in my sin, in my shame, God sort of backs away from me is wrong. I have to get that out of my mind when I think about the way God leads my life. And when I'm in my weakness and in my shame and in my humiliation... In my weak place, God doesn't back away, but he actually swoops closer. I have to get the picture of that in my weakness, in my sin, in my failing, God does not back away. He doesn't sit in his chair. He doesn't kind of hold the whip like, man, you are so close to getting just a little, mm. All right, he is in there, 
and he is close. Your weakness actually moves God closer. Okay, but I know that sounds crazy because we've really been taught to believe the other. But the Bible really does say that God is the high and lofty one, the book of Isaiah, but he dwells with the brokenhearted. Okay? Mostly for us in our sin, we're not, we're not like, unless you're like basking, you're like kind of going, I'm just going to do this, I don't care. That's not brokenhearted. But in our sin, we are brokenhearted as believers. All right? The Bible says that in that place, God, the high and lofty one, he dwells with the brokenhearted. He comes near to the brokenhearted. And I begin to get a little picture of who God is in my life. And I have a foundation for this is the way he leads my life. Now, why is it important for us to see that? I'm going to give you an example of this trip. Like, I, what I do, I love. Like, I think I have, like... I feel like I'm living the dream, really. Like, I, I love what I do. I love having this conversation with you and opening up the word together. I love getting to come to Kona and meet new people and seeing what God's doing and what he's about to do around the world. This is like, this is like unbelievably exhilarating to me. I love it. But at the end of the day, I get on that airplane and I'm gone one day and I'll, I, just, I just miss my family. Like, I'm getting ready for classes, and I'm, and I'm thinking about my family. I'm distracted by them all the time. And what, what preserves me in my relationship with them, what keeps me from being a workaholic, what keeps me from being consumed with my work first, or the ministry that God's given me, is that I'm a father first. And really, at the end of the day, every time I leave them, I don't like to leave them, and I'm constantly distracted by them. I'll drop anything to text them back or be with them in the moment. And I can't wait to get on the plane today, even though there's snow in Kansas City. This is a sign and a wonder. I can't wait to get on the plane today to be with them. That's my nature as a father. Here's, here's how I, I interpret that with God. Here's God. He is the all-powerful ruler of all things. But at the end of the day, I just picture God like making sure that everything is staying in its place, that the earth doesn't tilt just one you know, millisecond the other direction so that we don't burn up or freeze. He's holding all of those things in his power, and as he's holding this universe together, he's constantly distracted by you. He's constantly just thinking about you. It's like all the big stuff that we think's going on, the universe, the nations, the kings, wars, all of those things. He's got a billion believers that he's thinking about, but he's constantly distracted by you. And I can prove that from the word of God. Psalm 139 says that his thoughts towards you are like the sand of the sea. And here's what I, when I read that, I like to translate it into my own translation in that moment, and this is what I think God thinks. It's like, I can't stop thinking about you. That's my reality with my family. I can't stop thinking about them. It's like, I'm imperfect. I can be like, I'm so imperfect. But at the end of the day, I have this father reality in me that cannot stop thinking about them. You are daily my delight reality. It never goes away. And if I understand that that's who's leading my life, that's who's leading the universe. I don't have to have all the answers. I can trust. I can even trust him in my prayer life. I can trust him when I don't get answers to prayer. 
and I'm and I'm fighting to believe again. I'm try I'm fighting to stay in the, the place of faith. This last summer we were in Kiev for a month, and um, and my kids. I mean, it was a struggle for us to try to keep our kids occupied because most of the kids couldn't speak English, and it was hard for them to have relationship and or to build friendships. And they were we were trying to keep them off screens the entire time, really, and so. I'm literally like up at the podium, waiting. Like I have about five minutes till I'm gonna teach. And Emma, our second daughter, is she is like a freight train. She is like, she is like when she gets something in her mind, it's like there is nothing that's gonna get in her way of getting that thing. All right. So when she gets in her mind that she wants something, she will try every tactic under the sun. I know when it begins because all of a sudden she is the sweetest, kindest, most helpful child I have ever seen in my whole life. I mean, she can say all the right things, do all the right things, do whatever she needs to do to kind of woo me over to her side. Super powerful. And if that doesn't work, she'll just keep asking until you're so annoyed. I mean, it's that, like, relentless widow story. It's like, oh, my gosh, just get up and give her what she wants so she'll stop. You know, like, she knows all of that. So I'm standing at the podium. Emma's 12. And um, she has just been asking me for the iPad, like, for an hour. And I'm, I've said no. And, of course, a good father, <laughs> if I was a good father, she wouldn't still be asking me. All right? So there, confession, true confession. All right? But in that moment, I just, I just was like, she kept asking me. And I just, I loved the fact that she was right next to me. And so I go, Emma, I go, if I give you what you want, I go, will you stay here with me? Because really, in that moment, all I wanted was to be with her. I just, I love her. <laughs> She's one of my favorite people on the planet. And in my heart, I know that when I give her the iPad, she's going to disappear. Like, I won't see her for 30 minutes because that's going to be her limit. All right? <laughs> but in that moment, I just go, Emma, I go, if I give you the iPad, will you just stay here with me? And friends, that really is. I mean, just think about your conversations with God, the things that you're asking for, the things that you're wanting in relationship, and the way that you're needing to trust him in the place of faith, even when you're, you know, needing to believe who God is when you're not, when you're not getting the answers to prayer that you think you need. And just picture the father who's going, I don't know what your name is, but it's like, man, if I give that to you, will you just stay here with me? Because it's really all I want. At the end of the day, the way that God leads human history, the way that God leads your life, everything he's going to do in you and through you is going to be one primary ache in his heart. So will you just stay here with me? And if I begin to know that God, if that's the one that I'm reading about, singing about, praying to, interceding to, crying out to, I can just grow in trust and confidence and intimacy that I really am daily his delight. Like, I don't have to fight for power. I don't have to fight for position. I don't have to agree with insecurity. I don't have to, I don't have to agree with the accusation that on my outreach team I'm not very important or no one's really thinking about me right now because I just, I'm confident that I'm daily his delight and I'm living out of that reality that shapes the way that I make decisions, my thinking process, the way that I read the Bible, the way that I relate to others. You know why Jesus could serve the way he served unto death? Because he knew that he was daily the delight of the Father. He didn't have to fight for power. He didn't have to fight for position. 
He didn't have to fight for his own way. He was fully confident. There was perfect love that cast out every fear, and he was fully confident in the delight of the Father. As we look at the gospel of the kingdom and as we live our life in the awareness of the gospel of the kingdom and we bask in the glory of the gospel of the kingdom, we have to be aware who is leading, who is ruling the gospel of the kingdom. He's first the father. He's first the father. That's how he relates to you first in every conversation. I'm just going to pray for us real quickly and then we're going to sing. So Blake, you want to come up? Let's stand together. Uh, I just want a quick response right now. I just, I know that there are times, like I've done this over and over again in my life, because I had a good father, but I don't ever really feel like I had a super close relationship, or, or, or uh, I just, I have, I have my own father woundings. And so there were moments in times like this where I was like, it's okay, I don't need a father, I can be strong, I can figure this out. Sometimes as believers, we just kind of do the thing like, I can be strong, I can do this, I can make it. And God's going, no, I, I actually really just want to be your father. Just let me be your father. Don't try to be strong right now. Don't try to get it all together. I just want you to be here with me. And for a moment, I want us to take all the distractions, all the accusations, all the insecurities, and I just want to bring them to the Father, that Father, who sees you as daily his delight. Just take those things right now. There are things, there's accusations you have. There's insecurities you have. The Bible says, take every thought captive. You are not captive to your thoughts. Your thoughts are not in control. All right? So don't agree with accusation. Don't agree with lies that are not true to who you are and what God thinks and feels about you. So take those accusations, whatever insecurity you felt this morning. Someone said something that just hit you wrong and and, and, and it, they didn't mean anything by it, but it hit that little soft spot in you that is broken and you feel accusation. You feel like the weakest or you feel like the strongest or, or you just need help getting over sin. And I just want you to bring that to the Father that we've, that we've looked at a little bit today. Who everything else, he'll let everything else go just to have a conversation with you. He's not, he's easily distracted by you. He's, he's running the affairs of the world, kind of holding it all together by the word of his power. But you, he, you just one glance of your eyes and he's fully distracted by you. The God who is, who looks at you and says, you are daily my delight. Bring him those things. God, I feel this insecurity. I feel like I don't measure up. I feel like everyone else on this team is stronger than I am, and I feel weak. I don't know what I offer. I don't know my place on this team. Am I being used? Are they just telling me they like me, but it's just like they're just trying to get something out of me? I just bring every accusation before the Father and just 
That one who says, man, if I give you this thing, would you just stay? He just wants you to stay here with him right now. Yes. Come and touch us, God. Touch our hearts, God. We ask. God, touch our hearts, our emotions. God, we ask. Touch our hearts, God. We ask for power to know what you're thinking right now, God. Break past lies and accusations and Things that we believed, God, strongholds in our lives, by our history, even generational curses and lies, God, I ask that you would break in with light by the revelation of who you are. God, that insecurity that's on the inside of all of us, the fear that's on the inside of all of us, God, I ask, break through it with light right now, the light of the good news of the gospel. I want to live in it myself today. I want to live in it myself today.